You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. On one of the first really nice days of spring, I find myself on the campus of the University of Denver in a classroom filled with PhD students. Their social work professor, Dr. Ramona Beltran, walks in and the class quiets down. Ramona wears a camo shirt with the sleeves rolled up, bright red lipstick, big earrings, and sneakers. I think for our mindfulness and grounding, we should go outside because it's beautiful. But instead of lecturing at the front of the class, she gathers everyone together and leads us down three flights of stairs and out into the sunshine. We all gather in a circle. Then Ramona guides us in some relaxation techniques. She starts with some deep breathing. And we'll just exhale all our breath on the count of three. One, two, three, and exhale. Then the count of four. Inhale, two, three, four. Hold, two, three, four, exhale, two. We breathe with the sound of birds singing for a moment, the sun on our skin. Afterwards, we do another exercise. I'll just put one minute on my phone and just take a moment, walk around, feel your feet. You can take off your shoes if you like, on the ground. Yeah, so I'll set that timer. Be present, feel your body connect to the earth. We walk slowly, meditatively, around in the grass that still hasn't turned green. After a long, hard winter, the warm weather feels luxurious. Okay, that's our minute. (laughs) Ramona's timer goes off and we circle back together. Hopefully that was helpful to get you into your body. just really quickly, what did you like, what did you hear that came up for you? What did you see? What did you feel as you were just kind of walking? I think the birds, just because I feel like they've been absent for some time. So yeah. finally hearing the birds, it feels good. Like I know spring is coming. <laughs> yeah, me too. The students all share how good it feels to take off your shoes and feel the breeze, hear the leaves crunch. The last exercise is um, just gratitude. So if you can, as we're walking mindfully back to the classroom, think about three things that you're grateful for. And I'll write them down when we get there. Just kind of make it more concrete. 
Going up the stairs this time, the group is much quieter. When we get to the classroom, everyone jots down what they're grateful for. Ramona asks if they want to share. Students raise their hands and list things that they realized they were grateful for, like this one. Uh, my partner Emily, who has really stepped up in the past few weeks to help me survive this last quarter of classes and um, is the chef in our relationship, so keeps me alive with food. Then Ramona puts the activity into the context of the course. The title of it is Indigia Qualitative Research Methods, which, okay, is hard to wrap your head around, but it's all about teaching future researchers how to use storytelling as part of an appropriate method of researching indigenous issues, how stories themselves can be healing. You know, I want to um, come back to gratitude, not only as like a mindfulness activity, but it's also really good for healing trauma because it's part of you know, building neural pathways, so interrupting some of the kind of negative neural pathways that we have constructed if we've been um, impacted by trauma. And gratitude helps us to recall positive things, bring that sensation into our body and interrupt some of those other patterns that we inherit. Catch that? Interrupting patterns that we've inherited. It's something we could all use a dose of, no matter what our family stories might be. American history needs healing. And that's at the heart of all Ramona's work, healing indigenous intergenerational trauma. But Ramona isn't alone in this project. This time on the show, we're going to look at the creative approaches that indigenous healers and activists are employing to make peace with a deeply painful history. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Chatting in her office later, I asked Ramona how she ended up drawn to this kind of work. I think a lot of it has to do with how I grew up. So in a low-income, single-parent household. And my mom was very sick most of my life. In fact, my childhood is really informed by a lot of memories of her being in the hospital or being sick with some you know, chronic preventable diseases and mental health issues. And I didn't understand it, of course, at the time. I just thought, well, there must be something wrong with her. And then as a kid, you think it's also something wrong with you, your family, your community. But she was also incredibly proud and she raised us to be very committed to social justice. Ramona's earliest memories are growing up in California, where she mostly took her identity for granted. My family is uh, on my mother's side, originally from Northern Mexico, and are descendants of indigenous peoples of Mexico, particularly of Northern Mexico and Sonora. So I am a mixed race indigenous Chicana. But then one day, something happened that forced her family to move away. When I was about four years old, uh, we were living in the Bay Area in San Jose, California, 
and um, somebody shot into our home. And my mom was like, that's it, we're leaving here, it's not safe for you. She packed up Ramona and her sister and brought them to a small Oregon town where a good friend lived. A small town in Southern Oregon and um, you know, predominantly white. It definitely felt like it was clear that we were not from there. There were many instances of people asking, where are you from and what are you? So I grew up with that. So there's all these ways that you know we felt what it was like to be othered. Ramona's mom raised her to be conscious of civil rights, women's rights, social injustices happening all around her. So that was her headset when she got into grad school. I really noticed that a lot of the evidence-based practices and treatments that were being targeted towards people like my community didn't seem to be centered in that community. They seemed to be practices that were taken from mainstream approaches, but with some like cultural additives. One of my mentors calls it, you know, add culture and stir. <laughs> and I, I remember thinking to myself, we really need to be focusing on our cultures and who we are. We need to be at the center of it. Then one day, she attended a lecture by the prominent Choctaw scholar, Karina Walters. It changed the direction of Ramona's career. It was the first time that I heard about the term historical trauma and healing. And it was like learning this definition gave me words for an experience that I had seen and observed with my family um, over time. And there's something about that moment when you can name something that is so liberating because it takes that responsibility off of the individuals within a family and community and places them, you know, more where they should be which is on structures and systems and history. There's a lot of research going on right now to understand the science of how trauma can stay in our DNA for generations. This science even has a name. There is a body of research called epigenetics that is really looking at the ways that our social environments impact genetic material surrounding our DNA and that those can cause things like higher risk of mental health issues or chronic um, health conditions, and that those things can be passed down through generations. So for instance, there's data showing how generations of Jewish descendants are still recovering from the Holocaust, and families who endured the 9-11 Twin Towers attack, the Rwanda genocide, descendants of African slaves. The effects of all these events are still written in their genes, the research shows. For Ramona, discovering all this science felt incredibly important. I wanted to study that. I wanted to be part of contributing to identify um, healing interventions for our community and also sharing with people that knowledge. Like, it's not all your fault like much of the world makes us think it's all our fault because we make bad decisions. We make poor choices about what we eat or what we drink or what we do or don't do. But it's not that. Those are part of it, but 
largely the structure and system has been built to contain us in this particular way. And that has led to health disparities, poor health outcomes. People throw around that term, historical trauma, this idea that we can continue to suffer from terrible events in the past. But for me, it's never been clear. Is that an incurable condition? Ramona says new research shows no, it's not. Some of the what the research is, is finding is that those changes, though, um, to that genetic material are not necessarily permanent that they can be changed through um, behavior change, environmental change. And so when we think about that, it could be as simple as, you know, changes to diet and exercise or reducing stress. Those are kind of um, accessible ways to think about, okay, some of these conditions can be changed uh, behaviorally. But Ramona says the cure doesn't only rest on the shoulders of individuals suffering from such trauma. It also implies that our social conditions need to and can change, though, right? So the levels of stress that we're under that are directly connected to racial profiling, for example, or chronic exposure to pollution from industries in neighborhoods that are predominantly brown and black, if there were changes to the structural systems, perhaps those outcomes can be changed for the better. So it's it's a multi-level sort of approach when it comes to like healing historical trauma in a from a cultural standpoint. One major way that historical trauma manifests itself in indigenous communities is high rates of diabetes, a disease that Ramona's mother struggled with and that ultimately took her life. I was in Denver when I got the call. My mom, who was in the hospital with pneumonia, stopped breathing in the middle of the night and was in ICU. In her classroom, Ramona plays a documentary film for her students that she produced about her mom's death. Helpless and terrified, I caught a plane to San Jose. Doctors said she hadn't been taking care of her diabetes. I spent the last seven hours of her life by her side as machines gave her breath. Alone with her in the sterile room, under the neon light, I sang her spirit out of her body. Her mother's death plunged Ramona into despair. She reached out to some Choctaw friends to see if she could still join them as they made a journey to retrace part of the Trail of Tears, the route where the U.S. Army force-marched some 60,000 people from five southeastern tribes to Indian Territory in what's now Oklahoma in 1830 after the passage of the Indian Removal Act. Thousands of people died on the 5,000-mile march. I was just broken. And I remember one woman saying, if anything, this is the place you should be. Use this space to heal your heart. Cry all your tears that you need. And I did. <laughs> Lots. Even though she wasn't a member of the Choctaw tribe, they welcomed her as an ally. She carried her mother's ashes in her backpack as she walked. Ramona tells her students how grueling the walk was for her. <laughs> oh my God, so I've met so many bugs I never knew existed. <laughs> Chiggers, horse flies, did you know they chase you? 
They chase you. <laughs> my mentor likes to tell the story of how I was screaming, running away from the horse They hurt. So, but every single one of my journal entries ends like this, somehow with some future looking, some optimistic, and I was really wounded at that time. I was so grieving this unexpected loss. And so what I've come to learn over you know, the last 10 years as I've really been marinating on this story is that this is indigenous futurism. This is part of how we survive. Indigenous futurism, an idea that imagines a flourishing future for indigenous communities once they've found true healing from their history. As hard as the Trail of Tears was, Ramona credits it for helping her through her grieving process. But how likely is it that a doctor or a therapist would actually prescribe walking the trail of tears as a form of healing? Not very. Which, Ramona says, goes to show how crucial it is to center indigenous knowledge within indigenous communities. And that's exactly why, several years ago, she started a project called Our Stories, Our Medicine Archive, or OSOMA. It's built on the idea that storytelling heals. What people have said to us on multiple projects through multiple years, our stories are our medicine. Through our stories, we learn how to be in what people call right relation to ourselves, to each other, to the planet, um, to all of creation, really. When I'm feeling my worst, I, I go into sweat lodge or I ask for a ceremony. And then I see my community come and show up in a circle in that space around the fire. And I know I'm safe and I know that I'm cared for and loved. And I feel the presence of my ancestors there. That's one of the Osoma participants, Olga Gonzalez of the Yaqui and Otomi nations. The project started out as an oral history collection with indigenous people about their experience of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. But it immediately became much broader because health isn't just a physical thing, it's emotional, it's spiritual. So, for example, people have talked about different teas that they were given as children when they were having an upset stomach or, you know, if they were having anxiety, there was very specific plants and herbs that their parents would give to them. My grandma used to, she used to tell me, no, you should drink this tea because it's going to help you calm your stomach. That's Bonifacio Sanchez Flores, a citizen of the New Sabi tribe. And I, you know, being, growing up in the, in the American way, I was like, well, I'm going to get some petrovismo or something like that just to calm down my stomach. But I realized that wasn't working. She's like, no, you should drink this. And I think that she had it somewhere in her kitchen. It was like a dry herb. And I think that the herb is called iwara. Iwara is like an herb that grows in the village, but it was supposed to make your stomach better. I think there was a lot of stuff that I never seen because I never grew up. I left very early. I left when I was a baby in my village, but I think there's a lot that they're still being used as healing just because we're very connected to Mother Nature with it still. What's been beautiful to see is that folks don't articulate them as their traditional cultural knowledge, but then after they have shared that, they'll reflect about how Gosh, if I look back at it, I guess that is traditional cultural knowledge. Olga again. As a child, my grandmother, who is Otomi, 
I remember her visiting us and going to our garden and just picking things. And to me, it was just grass. I didn't know the difference. And she'd say, this is good for this and this is good for that. And then she'd turn it into lotion or shampoo or some kind of tincture for whatever. She says one of the biggest hurts for indigenous people is displacement from their original homelands. Recording stories, she's learned how people have found methods to soothe that pain. What we've also heard from people is that there are aspects of place that are transportable, that they bring with them. So either through the relationship they have to plants that they grow or plants that they use, or when they meet other people from the same area, or they're able to find uh, cultural practices that emanate from their original land, but practice them here, that those are ways that they can maintain that relationship to their original place and heal that relationship to their original place, even if they can't get back to it on a regular basis. And Ramona says it helps to learn more about the indigenous history of their new home. For Ramona, transplanted to Denver, that meant working to address the horror left behind by the Sand Creek Massacre. She got involved with a faculty committee to write a report about Governor John Evans, who approved the massacre. And she now serves on the board of the Sand Creek Massacre Foundation. I asked an elder from the Northern Cheyenne. We did a little bit of a presentation together in 2014. And I said, I'm not from here, but I hope you'll consider me as an indigenous ally. and." I want to be of service. What can I do? And he said, tell the story. Tell our story. So she does. Every year, she takes her historical trauma and healing students downtown to visit the last few memorial sites from the annual Sand Creek Massacre healing run. Many of the students who maybe have lived in Colorado much of their lives, they don't know about it and they don't learn about it until graduate school in my class. And what I see from them first is anger and sadness and guilt and then commitment. Once they see it and they have put their feet you know, on the soil in these places, it changes them. And in that way, Ramona is not only working to heal historical trauma from within indigenous communities, but also from the outside by educating the next generation of social workers. When we come back, we meet a Cree activist using a novel approach to address the trauma of Native women in prison. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. 
Hey, thanks, y'all. My name is Dr. Karma Corcoran. I'm an enrolled member of the Chippewa Cree Nation. My great-great-grandfather is Big Bear. My great-grandfather is Little Bear. And Open Eyes Little Bear is my grandmother. Dr. Karma Corcoran also happens to be the author of a brand new book called The Incarceration of Native American Women, Creating Pathways to Wellness and Recovery Through Gentle Action Theory. Karma's path in life brought her to a very specific strategy of making real change in her community. And that life path, well, it wasn't an easy one. You know, my story, you know, really is not dissimilar of many Native American people. You know, I was born into a large family. My mother had many children, uh, five, you know, a few different fathers and predominantly boys. There was just two of us that were girls. And my mother was an alcoholic and my father of the fathers was an alcoholic. I think other of the fathers were too. You know, they were not able to take care of us. As the oldest girl in the family, Karma was often left alone to take care of her younger siblings. I loved my brother so much. And my older brothers would sometimes disappear. Maybe they would be on the work farms of Montana, which were, you know, juvenile justice facilities. Then finally, our family just imploded and we were taken away from my mother. So I went into a foster home. Foster homes often create another whole layer of trauma for Indigenous children. But karma with a C? Well, she had really good karma with a K. You know, I was so fortunate. I probably had the best foster home in the history of foster homes. I had such a safe and happy place to be. And then I was adopted by a white family. And so I grew up in this white family. And I always had some connection to home. For one thing, I was a little bit older child, so I knew who I was, which was really good. And then my foster parents and I have a lifelong relationship. So I would go and stay with them for like a week in the summertime. They would give me news about my family, which unfortunately usually was sad news. You know, uh, another brother dying, you know, in a car accident. So I didn't lose any sense of identity. One time she went home for the funeral of her brother closest in age. There she saw her biological mother and sister again. Since then, she stayed reconnected. Karma grew up, got married, and had children. But in the back of her mind, she dreamed of going to college. At the age of 40, she made it happen. I knew that I wanted to do something about incarceration because by that time I had been volunteering with a local group that went into the women's prison, well, they went into the men's prisons too, and did ceremony. For Karma, working to stop recidivism on reservations seemed like the most important work she could be doing. 
you know, the amount in proportion of the native population versus per capita and how many people are locked up is outrageous. It's something like the native population is around three or four percent in Montana. And, you know, the lockup rate is 11 percent throughout the country. We are the most overrepresented as an ethnic minority. And it's just shocking. She witnessed just how pervasive the problem was one time while visiting the prison. So we were sitting there and across from me was a, a young, beautiful woman, Indian, and she was pregnant. And she was sharing, we were uh, known to be going into one of the men's prisons pretty soon. And so she was talking about, well, if you see uncle da da da, um, her grandfather was in prison. Um, and it was just like these generations and here she is in prison about ready to have a baby. And, you know, I just, I just thought this is, you know, this is what concerns me is this, this generational incarceration that, you know, I had experienced my whole life and that it was just increasing. So she went off to do her doctorate with a mission. Yet again, Karma got lucky. She just happened to be the student of Dr. F. David Peet, the inventor of something called gentle action theory. Dr. Peet had also worked extensively in tribal communities. So he was a real advocate for me. He passed away not long after I defended. And so part of this too has, you know, morphed into carrying on Dr. F. David Peet's work about gentle action theory. Karma already had an in at the women's prison from her years volunteering there. So it wasn't hard to get permission to do her research there. And so I was able to use gentle action theory in not only the way that I designed the workshop, which was called Healing the Sacred Hoop, but it was also about how I presented. And it was a different experience for the women they really responded to it. And I ended up spending like 18 months out there. It was supposed to be like six months, you know, but it was good. You might be wondering, but what exactly is gentle action theory? And how can it help people heal historical trauma? Well, I will admit, it's a pretty brainy concept. It's a method of fostering social change based on what physicists have learned about how real change in the universe is always arising within systems, not from outside. From small, incremental forces, not from big, powerful, external forces. The idea applies to making change in our daily lives, too. What makes general action theory different is a number of things. The first one, which is what drew it to me, is that it comes from within a community that's affected. There's been many times where outsiders have come in, you know, and said things like, well, you people have a problem with child abuse. You people have a problem with alcohol. You have people a problem with this. And so here's what you have to do. Here's the hoops you have to jump through. Karma gives me an example of how gentle action theory would solve a social problem instead. 
you know, we would do a little check-in about how people's week went. And then we would talk about last week and fetal alcohol syndrome. And some of these women had had time to process. And there was tears. There was shame. There was guilt. But we would not move on from that topic until they were ready. So there was none of this, well, with the end of our time today, let's jump on over to whatever. It's about how they want to process the information, what they see as possible solutions. While other social strategies come from outside the community and assign solutions, gentle action theory takes its time and creates the space for people to process their trauma and let the solutions naturally arise out of that healing. Gentle action theory really is about people, it's about communication, it's about respect, and it is about addressing societal issues in a way that we can actually get something done. For one thing, Karma says, the U.S. system of meeting out justice was never a good fit for indigenous communities that dealt with crime much differently before European contact. Because until the first foreigner you know, step foot on our lands, we had no jails. We had no prisons. Instead, we dealt with societal issues and harm in a different way. And they were dealt with, but we didn't lock people up. Karma says the reason her program worked is that gentle action theory pairs perfectly with traditional healing and ceremony. Talking circle is wonderful. You know, some of them would be like, oh, you know, I made it through another week. Others would be, oh, I miss my children so much, or maybe something happened out there. And so that was really good because uh, talking circle, you don't argue with the person. They don't need your validation because you've just listened to them. You have given them no feedback unless they want it. The women can join in sweat lodges, help prepare first foods feasts. And the elder women would teach the women, you know, this is how we put it out because there's a way to do it. These are the songs that we sing. This is the order that we eat things in and why. They would then, you know, share words with the women. The women would get to use shawls and dance and the fact that these elders came in and spent time with them meant so much to these women it was so validating karma spent time with elders to learn these traditional healing methods one woman passed along an especially important caregiving tool she talked to me about things that I could do. And one of them was this wiping of tears where they can cry it out and their grief, their shame. And then, you know, through prayer with me, we could wipe her tears. In fact, I just reached out to somebody last week who's going through a hard time and said, you know, come on up here. This is something, you know, we can do. And it's, it's very meaningful. 
because shame and guilt are huge burdens and certainly ones that I've carried as a woman, a wife, a mother. It's very cleansing to be able to do that. Wiping of tears, such a soothing act, yet not one you could expect to receive in any other group therapy setting. It's a public act that allows these women to be seen, no judgments, all their scars included. Hey, that kind of empathy, that willingness to say the hard stuff, to crack jokes, to make you weep, it's something that Denver-based artist and Pyramid Lake Paiute citizen Greg Deal strives for in his work. I meet up with Greg in the foyer of Redline Gallery in downtown Denver. On the wall of their building is a huge colorful mural that Greg painted of a young indigenous woman looking up toward the word rise. When I meet him for the first time, he's carrying what looks exactly like no trespassing signs. They're red and white on metal, but these say something different than the ones that we're all used to. So, do you mind just reading one of them? Sure. Uh, it just says, attention, if you can read this, you're on indigenous lands. And uh, for more information, contact the Indigenous Sign Initiative, and there's a phone number. Um, so what have, you, what have you been doing with these, these signs? I have a graphic design background. Um, right out of college, I worked in the sign industry, and so I worked in fabrication and, you know, with vinyl and all these different things. And so um, I sort of love the, the sort of existing in plain sight like aspect of this. It looks yeah, like a parking sign. It looks exactly like a real parking sign. Yeah, the colors are the same, uh, but it's essentially making a statement of being in, on native land. Um, to be able to adhere something to a wall permanently, you know, it's sort of a street art piece, you know, just like putting things out in plain sight and um, allowing them to be where they are is uh, kind of funny and, and yeah. exciting. Greg is particularly psyched because he found a marine-grade superglue that he can use to put up these signs all over the front range of Colorado and beyond. And that phone number on the signs? It actually works. When you dial it up? It's just a voice message uh, saying you've reached the Indigenous Sign Initiative and with the ability for people to leave a message. As I put these into certain places, um, yeah, people, people have strong feelings about the signs and uh, so they are leaving colorful messages about uh, how they feel about it. And so I'm collecting uh, voicemails. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me what some of these people are saying about it? Uh, you lost, we won, you know, get over it. The, this is not late of land, native land, we conquered you, things, things of that nature. Wow. Yeah. So you can see what he's going for here. A strong dose of very serious mixed with seriously funny. Greg says using humor is a big part of the healing power of indigenous art. Just like humor is a huge part of indigenous identity. Greg says art of all forms can change hearts and minds. Reclaiming bad media depictions of native people is one of Greg's specialties, come to find out. He says growing up, Looney Tunes cartoons and spaghetti westerns were some of the only native representations that he saw. It got him thinking about how to turn those on their heads. He started blowing up Pulp Fiction comics of cowboys and Indians onto large canvases. 
but he replaced the often insensitive wording of those. And then of course the dialogue I took down and replaced with lyrics from punk rock songs that I grew up with that use a language that sounds like the indigenous uh, fight or indigenous struggle, but obviously that's not what they're for. They're, they're mildly taken out of context. But I think really speaks to the intersection of being a, a native person, but then also having an American experience and, and having access to these things. Um, the same as everyone else, but looking at it obviously through indigenous eyes. Like, here's an example an old comic strip of a native fighter on horseback, tomahawk raised over a cowering Revolutionary War-era soldier. The fighter is saying, you're evicted, time to leave. Don't matter if your family's been here for 30 years. Remember, these are lyrics that Greg borrowed from a punk song. So that's how Greg's art takes all of these old racist tropes and twists them, repurposes them. It's an incredibly powerful example of how indigenous artists are contributing to the reckoning of our dark past. So as an adult, being able to take images that were recognizable to me um, when I was young and to uh, change, adjust, reappropriate, um, wasn't just taking control of these things that have been in existence, you know, since the 40s and 50s, but also reimagining it to something that makes more sense in terms of self-identifying, self-determining, you know, uh, set of ideas and representation. But Greg's art isn't always playful. One of his most impactful paintings seems so simple. It's of a little boy, nude from behind, standing in a shadowy corner. He says the painting was inspired by a story that his grandparents told him from their time at Indian boarding school. And the story was about a kid that came in and uh, the way that children are prepared in those spaces, the idea that uh, these these children are dirty and so they scrub them down and they put powder on them for lice and uh, it's all just foreign and uncomfortable and, and sometimes painful. And the woman who's prepping this child, recognizing that like his knees and his elbows look darker than the rest of his skin, um, which is pretty normal when you have a little bit of uh, melanin in your skin, um, when those parts of your body wrinkle up, you know, they just, they're, they're just darker. And she just assumed he was dirty and she took a wire brush and just scrubbed his knees and his elbows and, until they bled. And the story goes that she had done all that and put a, a garment on him and it apparently was towards the end of the day and put him in bed and he uh, wept. And as he was crying, creating a ruckus or creating sound, Somebody came in and was angry, and once they illuminated the space, found that he had bled over his sheets and over his garments um, because of the, the scrubbing, the, and they punished him. The story goes that, that nobody really knows what happened to him. They heard him being beaten and punished um, until it went silent, and then nobody ever saw him again. The name of the painting? 
his bloody elbows and bloody knees. Yes, it hurts to look at this painting. But Greg says indigenous artists are helping us as Americans look at and not look away from that brutal history. Native people are in a unique position, I think, creatively too, because we are tied to history. And, and that's just a part of, I think, our makeup and our um, overall sense of storytelling. But we're also in a place right now where even history is being attacked. Things are, we're being told that something is not real simply because somebody doesn't like it. And um, that, I think, is the scary place to be in because we can't and should not dismiss history no matter how difficult it is. Greg says when your heart hurts looking at that boy's bloody elbows, that's not a bad thing. Something positive is happening inside you, he says. You know, the pain that you feel when you hear something or you learn something that, that makes you uncomfortable, that's, that's you growing and learning. And if you lean into that, I think it can help you become a better person and a better sense of understanding and, and not just your place in the world, but the place that other people have in the world. I asked Greg about the argument we're hearing from some corners of the political spectrum that America's darkest history shouldn't be taught because it makes white children feel guilty. As the father of five, that question hits home. It's interesting because they're worried about some kids feeling bad, but they're not worried about Native kids feeling bad for their entire lives over the course of generations and generations and generations. You can't have it both ways. And so, yeah, no, it, I, I get it, but you know, I think it's important to figure out how to traverse that in a way that's healthy, not just for non-Native kids, but also for Native kids. Talking about children gets me wondering something. I asked Greg to help me define the term indigenous futurism, the term that Ramona used in her classroom. He says it's a hard one for him because it means imagining how Native people can exist outside the purview of settler colonialism. I think Native people are... are just frozen in the space of relic. And it, and it seems like to the rest of the world that that's the only place that we can exist. Um, that we are essentially being framed in a place that's just one step away from being a caveman without considering the, the complexities of our communities and the progressiveness of our communities. Like Ramona, he sees this indigenous futurism as an act of imagination and creativity, a job for artists. Right now, as we're speaking, there are these incredible things happening within art and within writing and films that are all pointing to not just self-determination, but a purview of indigenous existence outside of colonial informing, and that's really incredible and, and really exciting because it means that we do exist, we can exist. I mean, what would Native communities look like 100 years from now? Um, can they still exist? Are they going to still exist? What does language look like? What does tradition look like? How does that look in terms of technology and the way that technology also informs the way we communicate? There's a lot of really exciting ideas, but the most exciting idea to me is the fact that we can still exist, that, that there is not just space to still exist, but the longevity of that existence can be 
here, it can be back then, and it can be also in the future. It can be all of those things. It reminds me of one of his paintings, the profile of a traditional native leader in full regalia, these words across the top, existence as protest. And what he's saying is that existing is an act of imagination, of manifestation. Ramona would really appreciate Greg's answer. This idea that indigenous futurism means existing in the past, present, and future, all at once. That imagining existence, telling the stories of existence, are crucial for healing. There's so much creativity. There's so much innovation though that has always been a part of our communities and has always transcended those historical stereotypical captures of of those images of who indigenous peoples are existing in the past present and future also returns us to the idea of the hoop such a central image for plains tribes that's why it's no coincidence that karma named her therapy group healing the sacred hoop a title so similar to the name of this podcast. Karma says, hoops are a reminder of Mother Nature's promise that what comes around goes around. It's also the seasons of our lives, from when we're born and a youth, and then we move to here. And, you know, we think of the teenage years as well. That needs its own section on the hoop. <laughs> and then, and then, of course, we become elders. And how accessing the lessons to be learned in the hoop is what is going to heal us and it's what is going to give us balance. Shortly before his death, Hunk Papa Lakota leader Crazy Horse foresaw the healing of the hoop. I see a time of seven generations when all the colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life, and the whole earth will become one circle again. For many people I talk to, healing starts in yourself so that you'll have the strength to do the work of mending the world. Karma says her path had a lot to do with something that her grandfather told her. He said to me, you know, Karma, every night when you go to sleep, you know, you need to ask yourself, have I helped the world today or have I harmed you? And if you've harmed the world, you need to think about what you need to do. And if you've helped the world, you know, you get to get a good night's sleep. And it's something I practice to this day. There's this one painting of Greg's that really seems to symbolize just how the cycle of time links around together. It's of a traditional indigenous leader in his headdress with the words, you are your grandparents' greatest dream come true. The UN has defined genocide by some very specific tenets following World War II, where that word became you know, part of the, the vernacular of, of eliminating an entire group of people. The United States has done every single one of those things towards Native people. 
which means that there has been an effort to eliminate an entire continent of people, a, a systemic effort. And because I'm still here, because I know who I am, because I'm still connected to my tribal community and because I'm able to pass on to my children means that those efforts didn't work. And so that means that I am part of a dream that was never supposed to be realized. You are your grandparents' greatest dream come true. The grandparents of seven generations past, at the same time as it's a message for grandchildren seven generations into the future, it speaks to all the above, linked together in a circle by one dream. A dream that was never supposed to be realized. And yet somehow, by the sheer will and imagination of Indigenous communities everywhere, it has been realized, and fully. In his memoir, Ogallala Lakota leader Black Elk said that the sacred hoop was broken after the massacre at Wounded Knee. But as I've talked to indigenous artists and activists and leaders and history keepers, over and over, I hear people echoing what Donovan told me at the very beginning of this journey. Most of my life is, is collecting the history and mending the hoop. Uh, the hoop dancer represents all that's good in life. And your hoops are spinning, everything's good, it's a good day, you're in sync. And, you got your values, uh, Lakota values, bravery, generosity, respect, wisdom. You've got the circle of life in there and spring, summer, fall, winter and four races and good road of life. And bottom line is a hoop can be mended. Thanks for listening to this final installment of our series, Mending the Hoop. But be sure to catch our upcoming bonus episode when I chat one more time with my buddy, Native American historian, Jeff Means. It doesn't have to be a conflict. It, 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 you can, again, be mutual respect, friendship, support, you know, allow the natives then to eventually come to a decision on who are we and what do we want to be. And every Native nation would come to something different, right? But it would at least be theirs. I'm Melody Edwards. A very special thanks to this season's story editor, Ojibwe playwright Marty Strenzewilk, for his collaboration, his generosity, and his cheerleading. We couldn't have done it without you, Marty. Noah Greenspan is the assistant producer and line editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Ryan Kelly is the digital producer. Thanks also for help from Tina Unger-McGee, Emily Jankowski, and Courtney Blackmer-Reynolds. To see Anna Costra's original photography for this season, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Music by Navajo musicians Low Cash Ninjas, Eastern Shoshone musician Sean Francis and his band Pegasus, Klingit musician Kasky Russell, and Apache musician Andrew Vasquez, among others. History Reenactment by Marty Strenzewilk. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This podcast was produced on the University of Wyoming campus that occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone indigenous peoples, along with other Native tribes who call the Great Basin and the Rocky Mountain region home. We recognize, support, and advocate alongside Indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. 
We always love hearing from our listeners. Reach out to us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. We're also on social media at Modern West Pod. If you love this show and care about this kind of storytelling, share it with a friend or leave us a review. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.